Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we go to a very different environment to any that we've been to previously. And it's an adventure with different kinds of challenges. We'll hike more than 100 miles across an entire Caribbean island, bushwhacking our way through mountainous rainy jungle, where you can camp or stay in local homes and hostels. Along the way, meeting some very warm and welcoming local hosts. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Waitakabuli National Trail on the island nation of Dominica. That's right, Dominica, not the Dominican Republic. Where and what is Dominica? Well, you'll have to listen to find out. Welcome to the show, everyone. Feel free to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com with ideas for future episodes. I have an announcement. I have started an Instagram account for the podcast. The account is trailsworthhiking podcast. The goal in starting this account is really just to be able to post a few photos from the episodes. So for hikes that I have done in the past that we've covered on various episodes, I'll put up some photos from time to time so that you can see actual photos of those hikes. And I'll also put up photos from our guests who talk about hikes that they've done. And I'm also happy to post photos from the Walking the Walk segment. So that means photos from listeners who were inspired by the show to hike a trail that we covered on the show. If you email me photos when you send me your Walking the Walk report, I will post some of them on the Instagram account. Listeners often send me photos of their hikes, so I thought it would be great to share some of those. Also, if I've mentioned you previously on the Walking the Walk segment and you want to have some photos posted of your hike, feel free to email them to me and I'll post at least some of them on the Instagram account. So we'll see how this goes and maybe it'll change a bit over time, but I hope you follow the account and get to see some of these trails that we've talked so much about. So let's jump into the Walking the Walk segment. As I mentioned, this is a segment where we highlight the hikes of listeners who were inspired by the show to hike a particular trail. We actually have four Walking the Walk reports from three different listeners, which is great. It's really great for me to see how many of you are actually getting out and hiking these trails. The first two reports are from Sam Peck. Sam is a listener and former guest on the show who you may remember from episode 25 on the Kumano Kodo, which he had hiked in Japan. Sam has two Walking the Walk reports. First, he completed the Tour de Mont Blanc in August 2022. He made a video about it, which he sent me, which was really fun to watch. So thank you, Sam, so much for letting me know that you hiked the Tour de Mont Blanc and showing me the video. It really did bring back some great memories that I have of hiking that trail in 2017. Sam also mentioned that he and his wife got back from Portugal recently, where they walked two of the four days on the Ruta Vicentina, which was in episode 10. Uh, his only addition to previous reports, he said, was that walking in miles of sand is surprisingly hard. 
So yeah, I would think it would be. So thank you, Sam, for your reports on the Tour de Mont Blanc and the Rota Vicentina, which are from episodes 22 and episode 10. The next report is from Ryan Iverson. So Ryan and some friends hiked the Ruby Crest Trail, which we first talked about in episode seven, but then again, talked about in episode 20 after I went and hiked the trail. So if you are interested in a really cool mountain trail in Nevada, episodes seven and 20 are the Ruby Crest Trail. So Ryan went out to Nevada thinking that he and his friends were going to be facing hot weather and potentially forest fire type conditions. But instead, the script was flipped on them. And instead of wildfires, they had a different set of concerns because a hurricane in the Pacific flipped the forecast, predicting three or more inches of rain in the upper elevations of the Ruby Mountains over three straight days, starting on the day they had planned to do the main ridge portion of the hike. So they considered their options, and after getting some good advice from their shuttle driver, Rachel from Nevada High Desert Outfitters, they ended up doing the trail a little differently. They ended up coming in from a side trail to Overland Lake on the first day, which for me and Tony and my son Justin, the three of us, we got to Overland Lake at the end of our second day. So they basically cut the first day off and went up a side trail to Overland Lake. And that route was about 3,500 feet of elevation gain. But that allowed them to do the Ridge Trail hike on day two instead of day three to beat some of the weather and finishing at Favre Lake on the end of day two. By the time they got to Overland Lake, the rain had arrived and they spent the next day recovering from the Ridge Trail hike, staying in their tent, just trying to stay dry. And they opted to leave a day earlier than planned, uh, given the forecast. They had some good fishing at Overland Lake on the first night, caught some brook trout. Overall, they had a great trip despite shortening it by a day and a half due to the weather and rerouting the original plan. I thought this was a great report because it showed that you have to stay flexible when you plan these trips. Sometimes the weather is going to create a problem. Sometimes the physical limitation or injury can arise during a hike and create a problem. Uh, sometimes there are group dynamics or gear issues that come up that can cause you to have to change plans. But I love that Ryan stayed flexible and that he and his group were able to do a good portion of the Ruby Crest Trail despite some unpredicted weather. At the end of the day, they got to see the Ruby Mountains. They got to go to some beautiful spots. They went to Overland Lake, which is a fantastic spot, and they hiked the main ridge, which is really the core of this hike. So they got to see a lot despite having to make some changes in their plans. So thanks, Ryan, for that report. And last but not least, I have a report from Harlan White and his wife, Tammy. So this past July, they had their honeymoon in Kauai, and they ended up hiking the Kalalau Trail along the Nepali coast, which we covered in episode four. And they said it was an incredible experience. They said it was the hardest and best hike they'd ever done, without a doubt. And they thanked my daughter, Sonia, for all of her good explanations and advice and sharing her trip on episode four. They had just been on Maui to get married and then headed to Kauai for the honeymoon. So that's pretty cool that um, Sonia's trip inspired Harlan and Tammy to do the Call Aloud Trail. He gave some major takeaways for those thinking of doing the Call Aloud Trail. 
You said one night is not enough to camp at Kalalau Beach. So that's at the end of the hike at the furthest point out. He says plan on at least two. Hiking poles are required, and I'm quoting now, or you may very well die. <laughs> uh, that being said, the trail is not that scary, he says, and that Crawler's Ledge looks much worse than it really is. He said focus on drinking enough water and electrolytes throughout the hike. Also, pack light. Hammocks and sleeping bag liners would be best when going when it's hot. Also, he recommended being open to the hippie commune kind of vibe and culture that people have along this hike, because it really is, as Sonia described in episode four, an integral part of um, what the Call Aloud Trail is about. And finally, he said, this is a place of unparalleled beauty and is truly incredible. And he feels changed having been there and experienced it and that there is nothing like a sunset on Kalalau Beach. So there you have it. Thanks to Harlan and Tammy. And Harlan wanted me to be sure to mention how much he loves his incredible wife, Tammy, and to give her all the credit for handling all of the permits and planning, which is quite a challenge for this hike. And of course, to mention that she is amazing and beautiful. So I guess as you can tell, uh, Harlan and Tammy truly are in there honeymoon phase of the beginning of their marriage. And that is great to hear that they are so much in love and getting out there and doing outdoor adventure after listening to an episode of Trails Worth Hiking. So if you too want to get out to Kauai and hike in a beautiful spot, listen to episode four about the Kalalau Trail. So that was a lot, but I feel like we should talk about all of the Walking the Walk reports when they come in, because it really is an important part of building a community around the show to see that people are actually hiking the trails and to get feedback from them and to encourage all of you to not just listen to this podcast, but to get out and hike these trails. Before we go any further, I want to remind you about our sponsor, Outdoor Herbivore, and their special Trails Worth Hiking combo meal package that they're offering right now at a 20% discount to the regular price for these three meals combined. I'm recording this in late May 2023 and hoping to release it shortly before the end of the month. Keep in mind, this special offer really is of only limited time and will expire at the end of May. So as soon as you hear this episode, please go to Outdoor Herbivore and buy the package if you are so inclined. The 20% discount is automatic, meaning you don't have to enter a discount code if you buy the Trails Worth Hiking meal combo. The three meals that are included in the package are the three meals that I eat most frequently when I go backpacking. One is the chickpea sesame zeti, which is a really great creamy pasta. The second is the lemongrass Thai curry. And the third is the blackened quinoa, which is really a black bean and quinoa dish. All three of these dishes are great. I eat them regularly. And if you want to check out what I eat when I'm on the trail, order the Trails Worth Hiking meal combo. As you know, Outdoor Herbivore, which is at OutdoorHerbivore.com, is a vegan and vegetarian backpacking meal company. But as I always say, you don't have to be vegan or vegetarian to love their meals. They're high-quality meals with great ingredients, and they have lots of calories for a hungry hiker in each meal, and are packaged in a way that they pack easily for easy boil-in-the-bag cooking, where you just put hot water in the package and seal it up, and your meal is ready in 10 minutes. Outdoor Herbivore ships worldwide So please take advantage of Outdoor Herbivore's Trails Worth Hiking meal package offer, which is only available until the end of May 2023 at OutdoorHerbivore.com. 
I'll put a link in the show notes to the Trails Worth Hiking meal combo. In addition, I did send Kim at Outdoor Herbivore a pile of uh, Trails Worth Hiking stickers. So if you want a little swag with your meal package, there's a limited supply of those, but she will include a Trails Worth Hiking sticker in your Trails Worth Hiking combo meal package if she has any left. If you are listening to this in the future, after May 2023, you can certainly still go to Outdoor Herbivore and get our regular 10% discount on everything that they sell for Trails Worth Hiking listeners using the discount code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%. There you have it, Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, with that, let's jump into this episode. Today, our guest is listener Angela Kaplar. Angela and her partner are in the middle of a year of traveling the world, and during that larger adventure, they decided to hike the Waitakabuli Trail in the island nation of Dominica in the Caribbean. Angela is currently putting together a website to talk about the hikes that she and her partner have done recently, including the Waitakabuli Trail and the John Muir Trail, which she mentions in our discussion. If you'd like to check out that website, it is howwehikedit.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes. So for me, doing this episode is pretty cool because it's the first episode we've covered a hike in the Caribbean, or the Caribbean, however you say it. This is not the first island hike episode, as I just talked about a moment ago. Episode four about the Call Aloud Trail covers the hike on Kauai. And if you want to think of islands in a bigger sense, we did episode 17 on the Overland Trek on Tasmania, Australia, episode 19 on the West Coast Trail on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, and Canada. And if you really want to stretch the definition, you could even talk about the Kumano Kodo on the island of Honshu in Japan, although I realize that is a massive island with many millions of people. But in any event, this hike is not like any of those. This is a tropical hike. So in that sense, it is closest to the Kalalau Trail, but it's not coastal like that hike. And it's long, much longer than any of those hikes. So it's something new for the show, which I love. And it's in a place that I had never heard of, the island nation of Dominica. One of the things that motivates me to do the show is to keep learning new things and learning about new places. And this gave me a great opportunity to do just that. Also, it's a tough adventure, which is something we cover on the show from time to time, like episode 34 about the Condor Trail, for example. But it's not something we do all that often to cover a trail that really does take some extra effort and skill to do, or at least some extra determination based on some pretty difficult elements. So with that, let's get into it. What and where is the island nation of Dominica? Dominica is part of the Windward Islands chain in the Lesser Antilles archipelago in the Caribbean. So that's between Guadeloupe and Martinique, which are two overseas holdings of France, two other islands there. So what does that mean as far as where this place is? The Lesser Antilles are a chain of islands just north of Venezuela. So if you look on a map of the Caribbean, it's pretty far to the east and south. Dominica is an island that is very volcanic. It's the youngest island in the Caribbean. It's about 26 million years old, and it's still very volcanically active. Dominica is a member of the British Commonwealth of Nations and is really known as the nature island of the Caribbean, which is kind of an interesting moniker because it really means there's lots of adventure possibilities there, but not a lot of lying around on the beach possibilities. 
it's a lush tropical island with lots of tropical forest and biodiversity. It's the most mountainous island of the Lesser Antilles. And as I mentioned, it really isn't known for beaches. It has very few beaches, and those that it has are often rocky and not that appealing. So as a result, it gets less tourism than other Caribbean islands. So I think for a lot of us, that's a pretty good thing that it has less tourism, especially for those of us that are looking for hiking and trekking opportunities instead of spending the entire vacation on the beach. The total population of Dominica is only about 70,000 people. The capital, Roseau, has about 15,000. The other main town, Portsmouth, has about 4,000, and the rest is spread out throughout the island in smaller communities. The island is 29 miles by 16 miles, roughly, which is about 47 by 26 kilometers. Unfortunately, it is very vulnerable to hurricanes based on where it's located. And as Angela talks about in her interview, it got slammed pretty hard by Hurricane Maria in 2017. It does have some interesting flora and fauna. There's the Cicero parrot, which is endemic to the mountain forest of Dominica, which is their national bird plus one other additional endemic parrot species. It has snakes and lizards and is the last stronghold of the Lesser Antillian iguana, but it has zero poisonous animals, which is a good thing, I guess. There's lots of sea life in the area, as you can imagine, just off the island, including a year-round population of sperm whales. So maybe you could have a Moby Dick sighting if you came to the island. The human history of Dominica is fairly interesting, The Arawak people were thought to have been the first people to live there. Eventually, they were driven out by the island Carib people, who are also known as the Kalinago. One really interesting thing is that there are still 3,000 Kalinago people who live on Dominica. And that's interesting because it's the only island of the Eastern Caribbean that still has a native population. In fact, the name of the trail, Waitakabuli, is the native name for the island and means tall is her body. In 1493, on Columbus's second voyage, uh, he found Dominica and was the first European to find it. He came to the island on November 3rd, 1493, which happened to be a Sunday. And because it was a Sunday, he gave the island the Latin name for Sunday, which is Dominica. This is similar to the modern Spanish Domingo or the French Dimanche, uh, both words for Sunday that derive from Latin as well. There was an early Spanish settlement that was formed on Dominica, but they were driven out by the Caribs. And interestingly, they were not driven out by Caribs who were native to the island so much as Caribs who had essentially become refugees from other islands that the Spanish were inhabiting. So it sort of became a Carib stronghold as a refuge from the Spanish. Because of this, Dominica became the last of the Caribbean islands colonized by Europeans. The French claimed the island in 1632, and there was the first French settlement in 1690, which brought African slaves to the island. It became officially a French colony in 1727. And as I mentioned before, the islands to the north and south of Dominica are still part of France today. So why isn't Dominica? Well, there was the Seven Years' War between Britain and France, And this resulted in the French ceding the island to Britain. So in 1805, there was a small British colony that was formed there mostly to support the slave trade. But the British Empire ended slavery within the empire in 1833. 
And pretty quickly after that, men of African descent shortly became political leaders of the island. There was various iterations of British rule, however, until 1978, when Dominica obtained full independence. In 1980, Mary Eugenia Charles became the first female prime minister in the Caribbean as the prime minister of Dominica and stayed in power for 15 years. The vast majority of the population today is of African descent. English is the official language, but there is also a Creole spoken based on French. So what is the Waitakabuli Trail and how did that come about? In the 1990s, a Dominican lawyer named Bernard Wiltshire had the original idea. And then in 2002, a man named Michael Eugene, who was basically just a hiker who wanted to try hiking the trail, started a tour company and guiding people along the route. And as Angela will talk about, it's not that the route never existed before then. This is really a connection of historical trails that have existed on the island for a long time. The trail officially opened in 2013. It was built with funding from the European Union, Dominica, and the Regional Council of Martinique, as well as some local farmers and landowners. One thing that's really interesting to me is that there's a boiling lake on the island, which is really just a flooded fumarole, which means it's a volcanic vent that's flooded with water, and the lake boils all the time. And I think I read that it was the second biggest lake like this in the world. That is part of a national park on the island that is a World Heritage Site. So that's one thing that I just wanted to note that I didn't speak about with Angela. But beyond that, Angela had some great information about the island and its people and the hike itself. So why don't we jump into my conversation with Angela Kaplar about the Waitakabuli National Trail in Dominica. All right. I am joined by listener Angela Kapler. Angela is a listener from Utah. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So Angela, tell me a little bit about your background as a backpacker. I am fortunate to have parents who are outdoorsy and grew up backpacking. We have pictures of me with a tiny little backpack backpacking our local range in the Uintas, and they helped instill the love of the outdoors at a young age. And so ever since then, I've just enjoyed backpacking here and there. I definitely became more interested in the outdoors after college. So it's that's great to have the Uintas right in your backyard as a kid, because that's a fantastic mountain range. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm very fortunate. So before we came on, you had told me that you were you have been traveling for the last year. Could you tell me a little bit about what's going on with that? Yeah, my partner and I, he won a permit to hike the John Muir Trail. And that's such a unique thing to get, especially we got it where you start from Yosemite and end at Mount Whitney, which is the, the classic route. So with that, we decided to quit our jobs to hike that trail. And then we're taking it a full year to see how long we can travel and experience the world, specifically international travel. That's great. We're here today to talk about the Waitakabuli Trail. Did I say that even close to correct? Yes, you did. The Waitakabuli Trail. It's the Kalinago people are the indigenous people to the Caribbean islands, and they have a territory on the island of Dominica is how you pronounce it. 
and it means tall is her body in their native tongue. There's the Dominican Republic, and then there's Dominica. Commonly, people mispronounce it, but it's Dominica should be called the Waitukabuli Island. I have to admit, I looked it up because I didn't know anything about Dominica. So that was <laughs> exciting for me to learn about a new country and an island I didn't know anything about. <laughs> when I told my son that I was doing this episode, you know, he had, I guess, a geography quiz at some point in high school a few years ago. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know about that one. Um, but, <laughs> but I, but I'm I didn't with you. Know. I had no idea. <laughs> okay. So that brings me to my next question, which is how did you even learn about this trail? So my partner is really interested in canyoneering. And Dominica is known for having these beautiful waterfalls and uh, water canyons, which are class C canyons. And he's just had it on his list to try and visit there to do canyons. And when we were looking up locations for our trip, our year trip, Dominica was one that he had on the top of his list. And while we were researching it, we found the Waitukabuli Trail as a attraction. And so we were like, well, we just finished the John Muir Trail. I think we can do 100 miles since we did 200. So, <laughs> And we're going to talk about this, but this seems like it was a much tougher mile per mile kind of hike than the John Muir Trail might have been. Oh, yes, it was. It was a <laughs> lot more. <laughs> okay. So what did you do once you figured out that this was something you were interested in doing? And you, instead of deciding to go do a few days of canyoneering, you decide we're going to do a 14 segment trail <laughs> that covers the entire island. We're going to go for it. And how did you go about planning to do that? So it was hard to find information about this trail. It's not done very often. While we were hiking the trail, you interact a lot with locals and they're the most kind people you'll ever meet. And I was speaking with one of them and I asked if they had hiked any of the segments and she laughed and she's like, no one here hikes this trail. <laughs> no one does that. It's too hard. <laughs> so specifically to ask some of the locals, it was they didn't have much information when we were on the trail. So to find it ahead of time as well, we did a lot of research online. When we got to the island, we should have called, we learned later on that we could have called the Ministry of Forestry on the island, and they would have been able to give more accurate section updates. But Ultimately, we just used the internet and looking at people's various blogs. The island has a official website about the trail, but it has not been updated in a long time. It's just not updated that often. So I think in some ways that's pretty interesting and kind of fun that there are still trails out there where you pretty much have to figure it out as you go because so many trails are so well-trodden with so much information, which is great too to have good information, but it's kind of a different adventure when you're just sort of wink, not winging it entirely. I mean, there is some information out there, but you, you kind of have to just show up and figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. It is a different level of expertise for sure. So let's talk about some of the logistics for doing this hike. One thing is what time of year is the best time to do this? So we tried to aim for the dry season. And I say that with quotes uh, it rained every single day that we were on the trail, even on the dry side. So 
It's basically during the dry seasons. I'll pause here because I don't remember the exact months. <laughs> I looked at the website and it said February to April and you guys hiked this okay. in February, correct? Correct. Yep. Yep. Okay. So you were supposedly in the dry season, yet it rained every day. So be warned, if you do this, you're going to get wet. Yes. <laughs> and basically, this hike is through pretty much rainforest the whole way? Yes. The The whole island is rainforest. The coastline is more dry and doesn't rain as much. And the, the trail goes right up the middle of the of the island, so you are basically in rainforest the whole time. Yeah. How long of a hike is this in distance? So it's a little over a hundred miles. I think it's 115 on the, on the metrics. Yeah. Okay. And so for, for those thinking in kilometers, I looked it up, it's about 184 kilometers. And the way they've got this divided in on their description, the website's description of the trails, they have it divided into 14 segments Yes. Do you think after now having done this trail that that was designed to be a day per day kind of segment? Is each one supposed to be a day essentially? Yes. So it was designed in, I say, kind of European style in that you're kind of hiking from town to town. And if you look on their website, there's lists of places to stay, like accommodations. So I think the intention with the trail was to have people come bring uh, tourist dollars into these towns and stay with locals and go from segment to segment in that regard. I think it's mostly used for certain segments that people do as day hikes. Yeah, I don't think most people do the full thing very often. <laughs> so, but you guys, you didn't do any such easy thing as staying in towns and staying in hostels or hotels every night. You guys camped a lot of this. We did. We did. I had a hard time trying to determine whether to do a hammock or a tent. And we ended up doing hammocks with rain flies. And we did spend one night in a hostel slash hotel. So as you look back, do you think hammocks uh, made more sense than tents in retrospect? Or would you have, if you've done it again, would you go with a tent? I would say the hammock was ideal because you can put the rain fly higher and you can walk underneath it and cook underneath it. My partner is not a big fan of hammocks <laughs> and he would say we could have gotten away with doing a tent, but I found it was difficult to find a flat spot that would be dry enough that you could also store your backpack under. The people are so kind and concerned about your well-being. It would not be a problem to go up to a local and say, hey, could I pitch a tent in your yard? So we did run into one other couple hiking it, and they were using a tent. So you could do both. I thought a hammock was easier because we could just string up to trees when it was convenient in between segments because we didn't camp. Like after segment one, we tried to push each segment as far as we could. So I liked the ability to have flexibility in where we could camp. You guys actually hiked this in 11 days, but so not the 14 that might be designed for, but you also had to skip a couple of segments, which we can talk about later if you want. But just um, in general, it seems like some parts of this trail, at least due to uh, a hurricane several years ago, are in disrepair and it may actually be difficult to fully through hike it. Yes, yes. We 
also learned on the the east part of the island, they didn't have a, a particular name for it for the storm cycle, but last fall, uh, some people have said December, some have, have said November, there was an isolated rainstorm over Castle Bruce that just dumped a whole ton of rain, which is over segment five. And majority of that segment was washed out in these incredible landslides. So that was uh, a segment that was more difficult as well. And I don't know how long it will take them to reestablish it because of how much was destroyed. It was, yeah. For the segments that you did hike and that you were able to complete in 11 days, do you think that's a reasonable pace that most people could do? I would not consider myself an expert backpacker by any means. I'm experienced and I would say this was a reasonable pace. I don't know how mild how much faster you could hike it just because of the logistics of navigating through parts of the jungle. So this island is a pretty mountainous island too. So in addition to dealing with rainforest, you're also dealing with quite a bit of up and down, right? Yes. So the trail goes, there's a certain segment, specifically nine, where you're basically climbing up over roots, hand over foot type of climbing, and they'll have uh, ropes set up that you have to hold on to to not slip down the next side that's also kind of hand over foot climbing. So it's very up and down in that regard. And then also there are quite a few segments that are on the road as well. And the roads there, because it's so mountainous, are very steep. So yes, there is quite a bit of up and down. Now we've talked about the idea of whether to use a hammock or a tent. Are there other gear considerations that people should be thinking about? Like, I don't know, the clothing choices due to all the rain or um, other things like that? Yes, I was concerned that there would be a lot of mosquitoes. And there actually weren't that many at all, which was great. But the other side of that was that there were these very small, you couldn't really feel them when they were on you even, these very small red ants that will sting you and they're venomous and they can do it in succession. And wearing long sleeve shirts, long sleeve pants is essential to keep those off of you. I really enjoy wearing dirty girl gaiters over my shoes, and I had some of those ants get caught underneath my dirty girl gaiters, and my partner and I, we must have been standing near a nest, and we got a, a number of stings on our ankles. So for clothing, I would say have options for long sleeve shirts and pants, and know that nothing is going to be dry. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. So I was grateful that I had shoes that could kind of dry out enough and that I had clothing that could dry out kind of fast too, but nothing truly dried out. <laughs> Another issue you guys had to deal with is a lot of bushwhacking, right? So how did, how did you deal with that? Yes. So back in 2017, Hurricane Maria was very devastating for the island and it took out a lot of the canopy of the jungle and the underbrush really flourished. And along with that, the resources of the island were going towards and have been going towards 
rebuilding the structures of the island. So maintenance of the trail is definitely at the bottom of the list, as it should be, (laughs) compared to living structures. There was quite a bit of bushwhacking because it's overgrown. So I purchased and brought a machete from just a local hardware store to have with us for being able to clear the trail. And on the island, they call it a cutlass. But if you purchase a cutlass on island, they don't come sharpened. So I was grateful to have a machete with us to be able to go through the trail. When Hurricane Maria wiped out the canopy, there was a lot more sun. And there's something called razor grass that just loves sun. And it flourished. And it is called razor grass because it will cut you and make you bleed. And when the canopy reestablishes, the razor grass dies off when it's in the shade. But it still can cut you even when it's dried. So it just takes time for that to die off and decay. Um, I guess goats can actually eat razor grass, which blows my mind. But having the cutlass or the machete was really helpful to be able to get through those overgrown sections and not get too cut up. What did you guys do for food and water? Do you filter water that you find along the trail and creeks or how does that work? And then for food, how did you prepare food? Was it what kind of stoves did you use? So as far as water filtration, the island gets so much rain. The locals don't filter their water in the general sense. People drink straight from streams if they're above a town. And we brought uh, like a Catadine bee-free filter that was easy to filter along the way. They have in the towns these little spigots that just anyone has access to. And so we were able to fill up water there. What about for cooking? When it came to cooking, we brought a couple of our prepared meals from home that we like that were kind of left over from when we did the John Muir Trail, some freeze-dried dehydrated options. But none of that is available on the island. So we put together different meals that were easy to just reheat. So nothing that you actually had to cook. The specific stoves that you use with like a jet boil, the fuel you can't fly with, and they don't have any type of resources in that regard. So we left the jet boil at home and we went with a alcohol stove and we went to the local pharmacy and they had isopropyl alcohol that comes in varying strengths. And we got the 99% and a little hack that we learned along the trail. If you add a couple drops of water, it will decrease the amount of soot that gets on your pot. So if you do use an alcohol stove, this was my first time using one, user expect that the pot that you're using it with will get very dirty. (laughs) Yep. But we basically just boiled water with it, which took more time as well. It doesn't boil very fast. But we chose food strategically from the grocery store that only needed to be reheated. Okay. And what about for navigation? And this sounds like there were some challenges in making sure you were actually staying on the trail. Um, How well is the trail marked and how did you navigate? So the trail has these markings, yellow and blue paint, because it was 
built in partnership with the European Union. That's why the colors are yellow and blue. Throughout the trail, it'll be paint, or it could be flags, or it could be pieces of wood. <laughs> it kind of varied in the segments, but it was always blue and yellow, and you would see it periodically during the segments. It would be on a tree or a rock, and I thought it was fairly well marked in that regard along the jungle sections. It was harder to navigate when you're in towns the trail goes through a lot of people's farmlands and it can be easily rerouted through people's farms. Though every, if you encounter the person who is farming that land, they're more than happy to show you where to go and ask you about how the trail's going if you're enjoying Dominica. And specifically, segment six, the last part of it was difficult to navigate because it was so overgrown, there were no markings to be found. And I had found a GPX track on the internet that was before, before Hurricane Maria, so it was a little outdated from those updates, but that was essential for segment six. So besides the paint, they also have periodic signage that says Waitukabuli Trail or WNT with a arrow that points this way. So in the towns, if you can speak with a local and they're familiar with it, they will be able to direct you where to go if you get lost as well. Okay. Um, one thing you mentioned before was that you brought a lot of food from home that was sort of leftover, freeze-dried kind of stuff. And it sounds like for additional food that you needed along the way, you supplemented by stopping at grocery stores or smaller uh, shops that had food. Is that basically the solution there? Yes, and the little mini-marts that are in some of these smaller towns, the main food source that I would say was cookies that were closest <laughs> to backpacking meals. And yeah. I got a little burnt out on cookies, though they are good. <laughs> and there are a lot of restaurants, and I would 100% encourage you to, anyone hiking this trail, to eat at any of the local places that you can. The food is so good. And it's not uncommon that someone would invite you into their home and cook for you as well. Another thing with in regards to food, because of this island being a jungle and gets so much rain, there is a lot of fruit trees. And the Kalanago people, the person that I spoke with at their visitor center, said that they came from South America and they brought papaya, they brought mango trees. And along the trail, when we were there, there were a lot of grapefruit trees that we were able to, to have. There were star fruit and you're hiking through a lot of people's farms. I would not recommend eating food off of those farms because that is their livelihood, but if you come across a farmer, it would not be uncommon for him to give you fruit from his farm. But there are lots of wild fruit trees along the way. So we had wild cacao pods, which is absolutely delicious. Star fruit, grapefruit, like I mentioned. It wasn't mango season, unfortunately. They have papayas. And you'll see these plants um, called dashing, which I think is just taro. And that is very common to see long, big fields of those being grown. 
in addition to some of the yummy food you'll get along the way, <laughs> I would recommend getting the yummy food that people prepare from as well at the local shops. Yeah, that sounds like a great option. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that you guys were camping, but and that you stayed in a hostel once. But it sounds like, I think, as you said earlier when we were talking, that this trail was originally designed as sort of a town-to-town kind of hike. So I imagine you could do this hike staying in either local homes or in uh, hostels or even hotels at various segments. Do you think if somebody wanted to do it from end to end that way, that they could do it that way? Yes, yes. I double-checked that the accommodations are still accurate that are listed on the official website if you're using that as a resource. Otherwise, if you show up in a town, you can say, hey, is there somewhere we could stay? At the end of segment four, there is a gentleman who says he commonly rents out a room in his home to hikers for just a couple EC. I'm sure that would fluctuate depending on when you hike the trail as far as cost goes. But you could definitely set up accommodations ahead of time and hike it segment by segment and stay comfortable. <laughs> okay. You probably stay a little drier that way. <laughs> yes. Yes. A hundred percent. All right. One question I had is how do you get to Dominica? This is actually great because Dominica, the original appeal from my partner was that you used to only be able to get to it by boat. And I don't know how recent it was, but there is now a direct flight from Miami to Dominica. And I know they're working on expanding their airport. So you can get there by ferry from the other islands or you can fly there. And then you can get there by sailboat as well. Portsmouth has personal sailboats that pull up there. And then in Roseau, the capital, there are two ports for cruise ships that come for day trips. Okay. And so once you get there, and presumably most people would fly from Miami and show up at the airport, unless they had a lot of extra time. <laughs> then how do you get to the trailhead and to start your hike? And I think you start at the south end and go north, if I'm correct. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So they have an unofficial bus system that is a series of mini buses. The government fixes the, the fare and... Even if you try to give a little extra tip, they'll commonly give you back your change (laughs) Um, and say, no, it's actually this mini EC. So I would recommend experiencing the the bus. There are different parts of Roseau that take you to different parts of the island. So I think on the south end of Roseau is the section of the buses that will take you to Scottshead. And I would recommend that way of getting there. You can also take a taxi, but those are known to be a lot more expensive than the buses. You can also rent a car there. They actually just opened up a national kayak trail as well around the island. Oh, cool. (laughs) So you could kayak there too. (laughs) And I think you need a permit to do this hike. So how do you get that? So we actually had a difficult time tracking this down because you buy it from different shops that are listed on the website. So the website to purchase it, that link was broken when we tried to find it. And then all the places we went to that sold it were closed. Um, so I we weren't able to locate somewhere that, that sold a permit. <laughs> Didn't seem to matter. Yeah, no one yeah. was checking <laughs> permits, so... 
where I consider my trail maintenance maybe part of my permit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were chopping down the uh, razor grass for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about any other thoughts about just sort of issues with getting around Dominica? Like if you need money or anything else on the island that people should be thinking about? So the whole island shuts down at sunset, basically. So I would suggest you need to get where you're going before the evening time. The buses stop running and most places close. So it's better to have a place, get where you're going before the sun sets. It isn't uncommon to hitchhike on the island. I would say I felt very safe doing this. I had my partner with me the whole time as well. You don't have to tip, but we did when a local did give us a ride. We couldn't hike segment seven and eight because that segment is out of commission it's in maintenance. So we had to hitch a ride from one side of the island to the other. Dominica is a cash-based economy and ATMs to withdraw money aren't commonly found on the northeast part of the island or in some of the more remote towns. So we did our withdrawals for cash in Rozo and utilized the minibuses to uh, to get around. So we've talked a bit about this being a mountainous rainforest kind of island. Um, anything else about the features of the island or the terrain that's interesting to, to mention or about the, the wildlife that's there that you saw or any, you know, or the plants or anything else to help orient people a little bit about what this area might look like? So the island is also, it's very mountainous, but a lot of the mountains are actually volcanoes. So there's a lot of volcanic activity on the island. And the island also has a couple endemic species. So notably a parrot species and a land crab. I started seeing the crabs on the trail when we got up to Wattenwaven, and that's in an area where the volcanic activity is most prevalent. A fun fact about these little crabs, they can get actually very big, but their little claws, they will reach out, and if something happens, they can actually release their whole claw or their whole arm, and it will just grow back. So you'll see some of these crabs that look like they've only worked out the one claw that's quite <laughs> a bit bigger and, or, or they'll have no claws. So these little crabs are, are common on the trail. And then once you get to segment 11, you're in the parrot territory and they have these beautiful bird calls. Every evening, the sounds of the jungle are so loud, but very beautiful. And so that would be something I would say to expect. And then just, you're not going to be dry. <laughs> Pretty soon we'll jump into getting a little sense of what the segments or the, the progression of the trail was like. But a couple of questions that came to mind are a couple of things. Mm-hmm. One is you mentioned, I think you saw one other hiker you mentioned at some point, which made me think that if that was a notable event, there are not too many hikers out there on this trail. <laughs> this is true. We were both equally surprised and excited to see each other. It was a couple from Switzerland. This island has a lot of French tourists, and they were both French-speaking and English-speaking, but we were both very excited to see each other and give stories. They had started it a couple days after us, 
And so we were teasing them that they got to benefit from all of our trail maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so you actually touched on my other question, which was the island, the primary language on the island is actually English, right? Correct. Yes. And I think that's interesting what you just mentioned too, because if you look on a map, Dominica, did I say it right this time? Yep. Yep. Okay. So if you look on a map, Dominica is actually between Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are both actually part of France, technically. They are literally part of France, both of those islands. Oh, that makes sense. I didn't know that. <laughs> right. So those are, it's actually between two French speaking islands um, that are you know, owned by France. So that's interesting that the only other people you saw there were actually French speaking people who probably were in the region because there are other French speaking islands nearby. Yes. In fact, when you're hiking certain segments, locals will greet you and then they'll say English or French. Oh, <laughs> and wow. then you can <laughs> respond and say, oh, English, and then they'll talk to you accordingly. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Some people in the more remote towns have a very thick Creole accent. And there are multiple instances of both myself and a local just succumbing to giggles because we could not understand each other. <laughs> wow. And then we yeah. finally got to an understanding. It wasn't very common, but that did happen a few times. So let's talk now a little bit about the trail itself. And you mentioned before we started recording that you think of this trail as sort of having three big segments, sort of a beginning, a middle, and an end. So why don't we start with the beginning and talk about what that section of the trail is like. So you start in Scott's Head at the south of the island, and you hike up through that town. You'll more than likely be greeted by some locals. And you'll start into the jungle a fairly steep trail and some of the sections of the trail have been wiped out by landslides. So the, the areas that have been wiped out have been rerouted with ropes that you'll use as stability to try and climb up parts of the trail. And then that segment you're walking up to old coffee plantation farming land and there's little information signs that may or may not be there, or they'll be in various states of disrepair. (laughs) And then you you will hike up to Sufri, which there are some natural hot springs in that area that you could take a dip in if you wanted. And then you pop out on kind of the west side of the island, again, hiking through towns and little segments of, of jungle. So at the beginning... I remember looking at the map and being like, oh man, I'm a little bummed at how much road walking it looks like there is. And then by the end of the whole trip, I was like, oh, I'm so glad there's road walking. (laughs) (laughs) Because you don't have to bushwhack it. (laughs) Exactly. So the beginning part, I would say, kind of was between segment one and segment three slash four. You're walking in and out of these different villages. There's sections of the trail that were developed by slaves. One local did share with us, it was a great perspective. He said, this trail has been here forever and it always has been. We just connected it. So yeah, the island might reclaim sections of it, but the trail will always be there, which I thought That's was interesting. poetic. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool because you see that, I think, in a lot of trails in a lot of places of the world. They're there for a reason. They're not just designed for tourists, typically. They they yeah. originally had some purpose for connecting communities 
And before that, they may have been game trails that people followed or who knows what. But I think that happens in a lot of places where the trails are sort of in logical places that make sense for a lot of reasons. Exactly. Exactly. So that first part, I would say you're in and out of some towns. Some sections were beautifully cleared through the jungle that were easy to hike. And there were a couple segments that were really overgrown and required quite a bit of work with the machete to be able to pass. Okay, so before we go to the middle section, I have to read one section from your notes, from your trail notes that caught my attention that I think everybody should hear. It says, slept next to River Clare, washed in river, warm enough, danced in moonlight. (laughs) That is fantastic. (laughs) That sounds like a good evening. It was so beautiful. I'm glad that that stood out to you. I (laughs) did not know this ahead of time, but there's lightning bugs on the island. And when you change your headlamp to red, I don't know if this is universal, but at least in Dominica, the lightning bugs will fly at your red headlamp, which traditionally, usually I switch to the red to try and not have bugs fly at my face. (laughs) But yes, that was a, a beautiful evening. So let's talk about the middle section of the trail. What can you say about that? The middle section starts about segment four, segment five, and that's where you're really spending a lot of time in the jungle. The rainforest sections have variability of lots of mud and roots and swampy areas, depending on how much rain, which happens every day. So the middle section has a lot less road walking and a lot more jungle navigation. The hopes and dreams of trying to keep your feet dry was was dashed very quickly into this trail. (laughs) So this is where I saw in your notes where you wrote, very hard day for a, quote, nature lover. What did you mean by that? (laughs) Yes. So so on the website, one of the websites for this trail, they had designated out the segments that had these little excerpts of what the trail was like. And segment five was for nature lovers, or this one was supposed, or a certain segment was supposed to be family friendly. Um, Or they had these interesting difficulty ratings that are not applicable to (laughs) normal hiking conditions. So I, I went from these beautiful trails that are, I can't even explain how wonderful the trails are for the John Muir Trail. So <laughs> yeah, right, like a highway, right? Like exactly, a highway, comparatively. Oh, exactly, and then you end up in basically a, a swamp, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the middle section, you would hike through some of the tourist attractions. So there's the Trafalgar Falls, and some of the more touristy towns, and you're still going in and out of jungle and then popping out into town. So you would have had, there was a section where it was a horrendous climb out of this ravine with ropes over slippery slippery roots. And then you just pop out um, into this town that you have all these beautiful smells. One day we hiked out on a Sunday right next to a church and you could hear the beautiful sounds of the congregation singing and it could not have felt like more of a contrast. (laughs) That had to be surreal. Yeah. Coming from like this 
really physically demanding section into beautiful singing. It was kind of a mind shift each time. <laughs> That's cool. And so when would you say it kind of switches to what you consider the ending section? And, and then let's talk about what that end section was like. I'd say the last part of the segments would kind of start around 12. And that's where you're on the more dry side of the island. And you're going through different towns up and down these different ravines. But it's more developed. And the segments of those trails have more markings because those ones are more commonly done by tourists and local guides with tourists. So that one has, I would say from 12 to the end, has more markings and the trail was a lot easier to navigate. So you pop out on the north part of the island and if it's clear, you can see the islands between Dominica and Guadalupe. And there's certain segments that you're actually hiking on beach, which Dominica is not known for beaches. These are cobblestone, big rocks that you're walking over and more on local roads. So that's what I would consider the last part of the, of the trail segments. So as you look back on the hike that you did of this trail, why is this a trail that others should consider doing? Why is this a trail worth hiking? After this trail, I would say what would bring me back or what would make this worth it really was the people that we interacted with along the way. The locals were the most kind, friendly people. They're always concerned about your well-being. <laughs> they were surprised you were hiking the trail. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just so excited to show you where they live, where they're from. Also... I've never backpacked through a rainforest before or through a jungle. And I would say hiking through terrain that way was very unique. It took a different set of skills that were really hard to prepare for unless I have, had done it. So I'm glad that I was able to experience that. Specifically with rain management intolerance. So I would say the people and then the views it's a very unique thing to have a trail like this in the Caribbean with the views that it has, the people you interact with, and the intimate experience with nature. As you look back on it, is there a particular moment or memory that stands out? When you think about this trip in 20 years, what are you going to remember? That is a great question. It's hard to not remember the lows of a trail. <laughs> first yeah. when something comes up. So the things I, I know right off the top of my head, I'd say the razor grass and those red ants and the amount of rain. But at the same time, the positives were seeing how plants can thrive and grow so beautifully in a rainforest and the people who live there. That's what I would I would remember. What's cool about memories that are difficult of lows on a hike is they get better with time. <laughs> Those memories improve. And at the end, like five years from now, you'll think that was the best part of the trip that you had to deal with ants or whatever. <laughs> That's a good point. I need to remind myself that. <laughs> <laughs> so were there particular things that if you did it again, I think we may have talked about some of these, but if you did it again or were advising someone else how to do this, that you would do differently or think about or things that you didn't expect that might change the way you approached it? 
I would say the the amount of rain really was something I didn't quite grasp. So, and it, not just that it, it would that it rained every day, but the amount that it could rain at a time would really slow our pace through segments. I remember talking with a local because we had just done the John Muir Trail. We were like, oh, maybe we could like knock out a couple segments in a day. And he was very quick to say, you will not be able to hike more than one segment in a day. And we were like, <laughs> oh, we're kind of experienced. We could do this. And no, you can, especially those middle ones. There are a couple on the north part and at the beginning that you could link together. But especially in the middle of the island, those segments are just so physically demanding I was grateful to have shoes that I thought would dry out quickly. They, a lot of the people on the island have galoshes or like big rubber boots. And I remember thinking, wow, those would be really hard to walk around in all day. But talking with some people on the island, I would kind of wonder if that would be a nice way to keep your feet dry. But I would say something that was really helpful for hiking the trail was I had my trekking poles. And while there are sections of the segments that have ropes that you can hold on to, some of the segments don't have rope to hold on to. And it was almost comical on some parts of the trail where you're like, well, they put a rope here and they didn't put a rope here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was a uh, segment nine specifically was very difficult just because the amount of up and down, it's very steep, up and down in the ravines that was muddy from the rain was hard to to try and increase any type of pace because there's only so fast you can only go so fast downhill in slippery mud yeah yeah i bet well, Angela, it's interesting because you originally reached out to me as a listener of the show to see if I had any information about this hike. And <laughs> unfortunately for you, I didn't. Um, but I'm glad that you went and did the hike and that now we can provide this information to listeners. So yeah. this has been great to hear about your hike. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Before you go, though, I've got a few more questions. Are you okay with that? Yeah, yeah. All right. So what is one hike or trip that you've done besides this one that others shouldn't miss out on? Oh, so if, if I assume those listening to this podcast are also fellow backpackers, I would say the Lost Coast Trail in California is one that's not to be missed. So why is that? What did you love about that? The unique interaction with nature on the Lost Coast Trail. I had never backpacked along the ocean and it was kind of fun to have to time your time when you were hiking with the tide table and we were able to see nature really up close this is a little bit of a tangent but when we were there because it's so remote there was a whale that had washed up on the island oh, wow. or on the beach that we got to see that had been there for a couple of months we watched the uh, coyote take a deer down in the waves <laughs> Oh, wow. Um, so I, it was just so beautiful to be in that part, be on the island and see like bear prints in the sand. It was just a very unique interaction, a very wild feeling to do the Lost Coast Trail. Well, that is one that is still definitely on my list. Um, for listeners who have heard episode 36 about my attempt last year to do 12 hikes in 12 months, uh, 12 backpacking trips in 12 months. 
Um, that was one of the trips I was going to do, but ended up not being able to do it. And that was the second year in a row I gave up my permit for that trip. Oh. And then this year, this year I didn't get a permit. So third year in a row where I didn't do it, where I was thinking about it. So I will get there eventually, but it's great to hear that that is at the top of your list of hikes I should do. So I'll keep at it until I get that done. Yes, yes. Let me know when you do it. I'd love to hear what you thought. <laughs> okay. And what is the next trip on your list? Our, our next trip is to the Middle East. We are planning on going to Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Egypt. Each of Lebanon and Jordan have national trails that we are interested in doing segments of and yeah, just experiencing the Middle East. <laughs> you know, Israel has a national trail too. I don't know if you've heard oh, of Oh, really? Yes. I, it doesn't surprise me. It seems like every country does what, yeah. that we were looking at. I was surprised. <laughs> Israel actually has a trail that covers the entire country from south to north. Oh, wow. You're going to have to look into that. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe do some part of it. All right. Last question before we go. What is the worst weather you've ever experienced while outdoors and how did you handle it? Worst weather was actually, I would say, on this trail, on the Waitikabuli <laughs> Trail. And it was an absolute downpour. It was like someone turned on a faucet and we just had to stand underneath these big palm leaves to try and just not be absolutely drenched. <laughs> How long did this last? Was this like 20 minutes or just like two hours or all day? The particular moment that I'm thinking of was at least 30 minutes, but only lessened a little bit. It lessened enough that we could hike. It never fully stopped. And then there would be little moments of sunshine, but it rained a lot. <laughs> And it sounds like you dealt with this mostly by just sort of pushing through throughout this trip and that it, that worked eventually, that you just kind of get used to it. Yes, yes. I would say when we started the trip, we stayed at a wonderful hostel outside of, kind of outside of Roseau called Springhold Hostel. And they had amenities that you could hang stuff up to dry. They had a hot shower. And then in the middle of the trip, we stayed in Castle Bruce and... They had amenities that hadn't been updated since some of the storms, but we were able to kind of hang things up in our room there to dry. And then we finished at Springhold Hostel and we're able to really get things dry. <laughs> so so an, an occasional actual roof over your head helped. <laughs> it really was. If anything, just for morale. The day that we stayed in Castle Bruce, we had everything initially set up to dry on the balcony. And then it started raining. So we had to bring everything in. <laughs> so. Of course. Of course it did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Angela Kapler, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. <laughs> Thanks again to Angela Kaplar for coming on the show. So I hope that we've inspired you to hike the Waitakabuli National Trail or maybe just to visit Dominica and hike parts of the trail, which would be great. And if you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. 
And when you get back, tell me how it went. Let's talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we're going to hike the Appalachian Trail. No, not all of it. We won't be hiking over 2,000 miles for several months. We won't be setting up our tent in the rain either. In fact, we won't be camping at all. Instead, we'll spend several days hiking from lodge to lodge, trekking rather than backpacking in the Blue Ridge Mountains of the good old USA. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we hike the Appalachian Trail in Shenandoah National Park in the state of Virginia. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail you've hiked or be mentioned on the Walking the Walk segment, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. And a couple of reminders before I sign off. Don't forget to follow our new Instagram account at trailsworthhikingpodcast. And don't forget to go to Outdoor Herbivore and buy the Trails Worth Hiking meal package for your upcoming summer backpacking trips. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.